And I wonder, have you ever, have you ever hidden who you really are for fear that you might be rejected? I don't need a show of hands this morning on that one because I know we've all done that. All of us are guilty of that. And in fact, many of us may have done that in the last half an hour because our perception, so many of us, our perception of church, church is a place where everybody's supposed to have their act together. Everybody's supposed to have their life buttoned up and and fixed and figured out. And that's why when somebody asks me at church how I'm doing, my default answer is always what? Great. How are you doing? I'm great too. What a coincidence. Isn't it great to be great all the time? Great, 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 great. Right. And, if, and, and it's possible, even for me, as, as a pastor, and I'm supposed to you know, lead the way in vulnerability and honesty and everything, but it's possible for me, of course, to hide behind this, this covering, this blanket of greatness, because if you don't think I'm great, if I'm not really doing great, then maybe you'll think less of me. Maybe you won't think that I've got my life all together. Or maybe you'll kind of back away from me because you don't want the messiness of my life to rub off on you, right, if I'm not doing great. And see, every person kind of, I think, falls into this trap potentially because we all have the same very deep impulse within us. Every human being has this impulse to be both known and loved at the same time. We desperately want to be known, but we also desperately want to be loved And because love is the stronger of the two emotions, what we tend to do is hold back on people really knowing us because if somebody really knows me, they might not love me. And therefore, I'm tempted to keep people at arm's length. I don't want you to know the real me or what's really going on in my life because then you might not like me or want to be around me. Now, that that may sound like pop psychology. That's not why we're here today. But I, I want to point us in this case to one of the facets of the good news of Jesus Christ. Like a diamond has facets, when you turn that thing in the light, different facets give off different light, different forms of its beauty. The gospel, the good news of Christ, has different facets to it. It's, it's one message that's unified, but there are so many beautiful aspects to it. And here's one of them. One of the facets of the good news is that we are both fully known and fully loved by God simultaneously. And that should stagger us to consider this because God actually knows everything about you. Unlike me, I I know you maybe a little, but I don't know everything about you. God sees you to the very bottom, which means God knows your motives, your intentions, not just your words and your actions. He knows everything. And so if anybody would have the right to reject you, to reject me entirely, it would be God. He knows it all. And yet at the very same time, in spite of what God knows about me and you, he loves us with a love that defies imagination. He sees you to the bottom, but he loves you to the bottom because his love is not predicated on our worthiness. That's what the good news is. We don't have to earn ourselves or in in lieu of earning because we've failed, we don't have to hide ourselves from God because he loves us and that love pierces through our unworthiness. So God loves you fully and knows you fully and those things work in concert together. Now why is that important? Because God's love is a love that pursues and not only has he pursued us but he's also called us to reflect that same love in our community in our world and so we've got to understand what it is to, to, to see a God who would love us enough to come after us, even in our darkest and, and most unworthy place. And that's what Luke 15 is all about. Luke 15, Jesus actually tells three very famous parables in Luke 15. We're only going to look at the first one today, but they all three drive at the same 
overwhelming point concerning the heart of God toward people, toward sinners. And I want you to see the context. Before we get into the story itself, the context is really important for us. Luke 15, verse 1 Jesus is doing something that was very common in his ministry. He was hanging out with the wrong kind of people. Look at verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the context is important. Why? Because all sorts of unsavory people are gathering around Jesus. They want to be in his presence. He's not off-putting to them. He welcomes them in. Sinners loved to be around Jesus. The problem for them is that in this culture, in the culture of the day, your moral reputation was the most important thing about you. And so for the religious leaders, they're called Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders, they're looking at this group of tax collectors and sinners, and they're thinking these people are the scum of the earth. These people have no business being in the presence of godly people. And they start to wonder, why in the world would Jesus, if Jesus says he comes from God, why would he spend time around such ungodly people? Why is he rubbing shoulders with them and receiving them and even eating with them? And again, in this culture, to eat with someone was to consider them an honorable and worthy person. Right? Eating was, was not just consuming food. It was, a very, it was a socially significant statement to make. And so they can't get over the fact that Jesus would hang out with these kinds of people. And so Jesus begins to tell stories. He tells three parables. And notice here that he's not only talking to one group here. He's speaking to the tax collectors and sinners, but also to the Pharisees and the scribes. He wants both groups to understand the heart of God. And that's how we find ourselves now in the parable of the lost sheep. Look at this in verse 3. Jesus told them this parable saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's three things we see in this parable I want to hone in on today. The first is we see value, we see pursuit, and then we see celebration. All right? We're going to see value, pursuit, and celebration. You don't have to be a shepherd of sheep to appreciate what Jesus is saying in this story. He, he puts the cookies on the bottom shelf here for us. This is a pretty easy parable to understand, I think. And it gets us in a, in a place that's not just vocation. It's not just shepherds can understand this, but anybody could understand the point he's making here. Who among you, if you had 100 sheep and you lost one, you wouldn't leave the 99 and go find the one you lost? Jesus is making a statement of value here, isn't he? It's value. If you're, if you're a shepherd of sheep, all of your sheep are precious to you. This is your livelihood. This is your whole life. You probably spend more time with these sheep than you do your own family in this day and age, right? And so these sheep are precious to you. They're not just commodities. You don't just look up and say, well, I've lost one. Well, I've still got 99, so I'm fine. No, these sheep belong to you and they are lost and helpless apart from you. 
Sheep are not animals that can defend themselves or find their way back into the fold. They're helpless. And so when one is lost, it's not just the shepherd's duty to go after the sheep. It's his desire. It's his heart. That's why Jesus paints the parable like this. Who among you wouldn't do this? It's understood that a person would have enough compassion and enough desire to go after the one sheep. But honestly, I, you know, and maybe this is just the way my mind thinks. I, I've always struggled with this parable, just the sheer mathematics of it. Not the compassion piece, maybe so much. But I've always wondered, I've worked the scenario out of my mind. Maybe you've done this too. You, you leave the 99 to go find the one. Say you do find the one, and when you come back, 12 more have wandered off now. And you've multiplied your problem rather than solving it. Or maybe they've been eaten by wolves in your absence. Right? And it's possible that we could look at this, this parable and say, well, it's compassionate, yes, but it's also reckless. It's risky, isn't it? To go after the one? Isn't that, isn't that just collateral damage? You lose the one, fair enough, but don't lose the rest. And Jesus is well aware of the risk. He, he, he understands what he's saying here. This, that's why if you look back in verse 4, Jesus makes a, he says a little phrase here that I think is telling. He says, you leave the 99 in the open pasture and you go after the one. Open pasture assumes danger. It assumes vulnerability. It assumes risk. And the point Jesus is making, of course, is not that the other 99 are somehow unimportant or less important than the one, but he's trying to communicate that even at risk, the shepherd goes and he brings back the one. The one is valuable enough that it's worth the risk and danger of leaving the 99. That's the whole point here. Every lost sheep is precious to God, right? In Luke chapter 19, Jesus uh, I reference this story a lot, and one day we'll preach the, the whole thing. But Jesus in Luke 19 walks into the city of Jericho. Great throng of people, a big crowd. Everybody wants a piece of him. Everybody wants to be around Jesus. And yet, if you remember, he walks up to one man, a man named Zacchaeus. He looks Zacchaeus in the eye and says, I'm coming to your house today. All these people, all these needy people, all these excited people that want to be around Jesus. And yet in that story, he had a very laser I'd focus on one man, Zacchaeus. And when Zacchaeus received salvation by faith in Jesus in that story, Jesus made a comment about himself. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to seek and save that which was lost. And so we see what God values here. He values the one. And that value leads him to pursue the one, right? To pursue the lost sheep. So value produces pursuit. Now, think, I want you to consider this fact here. This is not in the story. Jesus doesn't give us all the details here. But I want to assure you that this one lost sheep did not get lost by accident. He didn't just wander off, he or she, didn't just wander off by no fault of their own, and now, they just, now they're out lost and helpless in the wilderness. Okay, that's, that's not what's happened here. Sheep, for one, sheep are herd animals. There's safety in numbers. They don't wander off by themselves typically because they are prey to basically every... I mean, they're the weakest animal probably in the world, pound for pound. They're, they're terribly weak and helpless. And so they stay together. They stick close to their shepherd. And there's no way that this sheep wandered off by no fault of its own. It was disobedient. It was rebellious. It was a self-willed sheep. Okay, Kyle, what makes you such an expert on sheep? Uh, I'm not an expert on sheep, but I can tell you this. This story ain't about sheep. And this is how I can say this with great confidence, that this is a rebellious sheep. Because the point is, the sheep is a sinner. That's the whole point of the parable, remember? 
It's the one lost sinner who repents that Jesus is going after in this case. And people don't become sinners by accident. People don't wander off from God by no fault of our own. And we just need Jesus to kind of come along and help us find our way home. That's not the message of the scripture. The message here is that Jesus values and pursues rebels. People who have left out from under the authority and the provision and protection of God in a rebellious state. That's where Jesus has to come and find us, okay? And so in Luke 15, remember who he's talking to, tax collectors and sinners? They didn't become that way on accident. This is the life they chose for themselves. There's a sense in which the religious leaders are right in looking down their noses on these people because in the culture of the time, moral reputation was everything, and these people have opted out. They have chosen a way of life that rejects God and rejects the moral culture, and therefore they don't belong. I mean, that was the perception, right? And and it's kind of hard to argue against that. They had every opportunity to live morally upright lives, and yet they chose otherwise, okay? But here's the truth. That's, That's every human being. That's you and me. Every human being. Some of us maybe appear better than others, but all of us have sinned and have fallen short of God's glory. We are the lost sheep. The story is not about the 99, you know, so-called in this room and the poor one that's out there somewhere else not in church today. This story is about every last one of us. This is us. And so we're not sheep in the sense that we're just lost and helpless, okay, um, and, 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 and victims of circumstance. We're lost and helpless by our own choices. We're lost and helpless and needy because of what we've done, and that, uh, that, that state of lostness is called sin. Here's how Paul frames it in Titus chapter 3. Paul says, For we once also were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Right? Paul didn't paint a pretty picture, but he paints himself into it as well. He says, We all were once this way. Everybody finds yourself somewhere on that list, right? That's who we were. Some people are good sinners, meaning, you know, we, we put on a religious front. We don't appear to be very bad, you know, and, and, and people may applaud us for our good, good deeds and our, uh, our moral uprightness. We're good sinners. Other people are bad sinners, meaning, you know, their sin is more upfront and obvious. They don't really try to hide it, like the tax collectors and sinners in this story. But whether you're a good sinner or a bad sinner, what's the common denominator here? We're all in the same boat. We're all the lost sheep. That's the point of the story, and we're going to see that more clearly as we, as we go. But uh, if we're equally lost and we're equally needy, then we're also equally um, hopeless unless God should intervene. And that's why Jesus talks about the shepherd pursuing us. Um, I, I love the fact that in this story, Jesus elsewhere in John, Jesus called himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so this story is really about him. It's not about shepherds, right? It's about Christ and what he's done for us. But I love the fact that in this story, you notice there's a little detail um, that is significant in how the shepherd finds the sheep. And when he finds the sheep, you notice what he does? He lays it on his shoulders and he carries it home. And this is fascinating to me because on... On my part, I, I might think that this, this dumb animal that's gotten itself lost, the shepherd might come along, and to make sure it doesn't happen again, 
kick that thing in the behind, get back in there. What are you thinking? Never do that again, right? It's one way to do it. But no, the shepherd in this story hoists that sheep up over his shoulders. He bears all the weight of that sheep and carries it home. And you see the connection here, what Jesus has done for you, what he's done for me? In our lostness, in our helplessness, in our hopelessness, he doesn't come and try to kick us back into gear. He he lays us on his shoulders. He lays all the weight of your lostness, your sin, on his own shoulders. He bears it all. Jesus did not come into the world to give us a program of moral improvement. He didn't come into the world to show us how it's done and wish us luck. He came into the world to bear our sins in his own body, to lay your sin on his shoulders. And I wonder if that's how you perceive God. Because I think for a lot of us, our perception of God is, I had my chance and God's not letting me back in. I had my chance, I messed it up, and God wants nothing to do with me now. And so I'm just lost to fend for myself. Or maybe God's a little more gracious than that in your mind. He, he might let me back in. He's willing to take me back if I prove myself. If I promise never to do that sin again, whatever that sin is for you. If I make myself worthy, if I earn my way back, then maybe God will let me back in. Can I encourage you today that those options are not biblical options? Those options are not good news. That's bad news. Either God is angry and you're done, you had your chance and you're gone. Or God, is, God has a little chink in his armor. You might be able to squeeze your way back in if you earn your keep. That's not good news. What's the good news? The good news is that the same shoulders that carry the sheep back into the fold are the same shoulders that bore the cross to Calvary. The same shoulders that bear the weight of all of our sins. The good news is that Jesus Christ did not wait for you to figure your way out back home. He came and he got you in your sin. He died for you in order that he might bring you into the family of God. That's the good news. And to put all your weight on his shoulders, uh, that's, that's something called faith. Faith, not a work, not something that we bring to the table that God has to accept as good enough. Faith that every single sin in my life has been paid for. That every failure in my life has been nailed to the cross, as it were. And it's finished. It's done. The the load has been uh, borne out by someone else beyond and outside of me. Jesus Christ himself has done that for us. That's good news. See, faith says I put all my weight, all my trust in Christ to rescue me. And that's exactly what he does. And so that pursuit is what leads us to celebration. Remember, there's value. That value pursues the one lost sheep. That's us. And then God celebrates. You notice who who leads the celebration in this story? The one who gathers everybody together for the party? It's the shepherd, right? He carries that sheep back into the fold. He comes home and he says, I found the sheep that was lost Let's party. Let's let's enjoy and rejoice and celebrate what's been found. And Jesus makes the connection in verse 7. Go back to verse 7. In case there's any doubt as to what this parable really means here, he, he makes it very clear for us. He says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I've been a Christian for 19 years, and I only very recently have I come 
to realize that God is the most joyful person in the universe. And again, that may break a category for you. We don't always think of God as being joyful. We think maybe that God is cantankerous. God's always upset. He's always disappointed. He's always fed up, right? And he could be with, with knuckleheads like me running around. But God is the most joyful being in the universe. God is the most celebratory person that has ever existed. Because every time one sinner repents, what happens in heaven? Joy. And repentance, by the way, means that we, we renounce our sin, the sin that led us away from God in rebellion. We see it for what it is. We renounce it and we turn instead to Jesus Christ. Repentance is an act of faith. It's not something we do so much as it is turning away from what bound us in our darkness and our lostness and trusting Christ instead. But every time that happens, all of heaven resounds with joy. And God's the one leading the procession there. I want you to, most of us probably, all of us probably, have family members who have died and, and we know that they were Christians and they have gone on to heaven to be with God. <coughs> Do you realize that for your loved ones right now, this is their everyday experience? Earthquakes of joy every day in heaven, a parade of gladness every day led by God himself. Every time somebody turns to Jesus Christ, they throw a party. You even wonder what that could be like. Well, we'll know one day. By faith in him, we'll, we'll, we'll know what it's like one day. It's an incredible thought. God's the most joyful, celebratory person there is. And we need to recognize him that way, that though we were unworthy, though he knew us down to the bottom, he was so deeply in love with his creation that he refused to leave us lost. He came and pursued us and brought us to himself. And now he celebrates his grace and goodness, and we get to be a part of it. It's incredible. Now, before we apply this, I want to apply this to the church, not just to the individual. But I want you to, I, you may be perplexed by this. I've always struggled with the end, the end of verse 7. So let's just take about 20 seconds here. At the end of verse 7, Jesus says, there's more, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Is Jesus saying that there are people in the world good enough on their own that they don't need to be rescued. I, let me tell you this. The Bible is very clear all throughout. Jesus is very clear elsewhere in the Gospels that there's no such thing as a righteous person who needs no repentance. Okay, he's not, he's not creating a category here that if you could be good enough, then you don't need Jesus to die on your behalf. Okay, um, th What's helpful here is we remember the context. When Jesus says 99 people who need no repentance, who's he talking about here? Remember the story that he's speaking to two groups of people very disparate groups of people, very different. Couldn't be any different, more different. You've got tax collectors and sinners on one side of the room. You've got Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders on the other side. And the religious leaders are grumbling. They're complaining about how bad these people are. They don't deserve to be in the presence of godly men. And the, the, what Jesus is trying to impress upon them, and of course the following two parables intensify this, especially the third parable, the prodigal son, but what Jesus is trying to communicate to them is that these Pharisees and scribes, they don't see themselves as sinners. They don't recognize that they are the lost sheep too. And Jesus says, therefore, I don't take any joy in you. There's joy in heaven over one person who turns to me. There's no joy over the 99 who see no need for it. You see what Jesus is saying here? There's almost a tinge of sarcasm here as he's trying to, to 
point the religious leaders to the fact that they are sinners too and they just can't see it. Or maybe they'd be willing to admit, sure, okay, I've, I, you know, I've got sin in my life, yes. But whatever it was in their lives, it wasn't bad enough that they felt the need to repent. That they had to turn away from that sin and turn to Christ for His grace. They felt like they can, they can earn their way out of it. They can hide hide it away maybe well enough that it's unnoticeable and they can keep on going as usual. And so Jesus is trying to point the religious leaders to something that they cannot see because they don't see sin in themselves. That's why they look down their noses on the people that they think cannot measure up. And so there's a clear implication for us personally in this. And I've already mentioned it, but I'm going to say it again. We've got to recognize ourselves as the lost sheep in this story. Okay, Try as we might to be good enough There is no such thing as good enough. On our own, we've got to receive the grace of God. We are far from God because of sin, but Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so in his great love and mercy, he pursued you. He laid you on his shoulders. He carried all the weight of your sin and lostness, and he has made you a child of God. You brought nothing to that equation. You bring nothing to the table. You simply receive that gift. It's a gift of grace. That's who we are, every last one of us, okay? Now, with that in view, individually, understanding that, I want to just spend a few minutes talking about, okay, what does that mean for a church? What does that mean for a people? Not just individuals, right? But for a community of faith. Because it only makes sense that if we all individually understand this and experience this grace, if Jesus has brought us in by his grace, wouldn't we as a community of people reflect that very same grace to the larger community. It's not something that we incubate. It's not something that we just enjoy for ourselves only. We're meant to reflect, as in a mirror, we're meant, we're meant to reflect what's been done for us. And that's why we say a core value of Harvest Church, we say love pursues. I didn't forget. I just wanted to make sure it was up there. We say love pursues. Because that's what Jesus Christ has done for us, and that's what he wants to do within us as ambassadors of Christ now to the world, as those who are the display case of his glory to the watching world, it's a love that pursues. It's what's been done for us, and now it's what we do for others. Here's the problem with that. And this is, I, I just, this is confession time for Kyle, okay? The problem for me, and maybe for a lot of us, is that the longer I have lived as a Christian, the easier it becomes for me to, be, to fall into Pharisee mode. Okay, the longer I've been a Christian, 19 years, it's easy for me to become a Pharisee, which means it's easy for me to start breaking the world down into the same categories that the people of Luke 15 did. That there are some people who are good and religious. That's the side I want to be on. Oh, and there are some people who are bad and unworthy. And that standard maybe changes over the course of time. We may have different targets as to who's bad. We don't look at tax collectors the same way they did perhaps back then, but oh, there, there, there are those people out there who are unworthy of God's love and mercy, and we create potentially this, this separation between the two, okay? And maybe you don't, it's not that malicious in your own heart, but think about this. I think this is probably true for a majority of Christians, that the longer we're Christians, the more we kind of create separation from me to the rest of the world, to those who don't behave and believe like I behave and believe. That the longer I'm a Christian, the more I tend to kind of siphon myself off from the rest of the world, people who are not like me. And one of the gut checks, I had a pastor say this one time, and it hit me so hard. 
He said, if, if you could pull out your cell phone, and if you can't find three people in your phone who don't know Jesus, that you're friends with, that you could ask out for lunch or coffee to talk to, he said, something's terribly wrong. You have siphoned yourself off from people who are not like you, and therefore you lack influence with people who don't know the Lord. And y'all, you can see how that hit me like a ton of bricks, because that was true of me. Where's my influence? Where, where's the loving pursuit that I've received that now I push out in my everyday life? I've withdrawn from people who are, like, who are not like me, and, and I've made myself good and then bad. And that's so easy to do. That's so easy to do. Um, and therefore, I shouldn't be around people like that. I don't want my kids around people like that. I, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, this, this valve of God's grace gets shut off. Input, oh yeah, I want God's grace every day. Output, not so much. Because I've created false categories that allow me to be good, and I don't need to be around other people who don't measure up. Okay? Now, I'm being a little extreme when I say it like that, but that's, that truth resonates in my own heart. And the proof is in the pudding in my life that I'm not as outward and pursuing as I ought to be because I've created categories that don't allow for it. Now, of course, Jesus calls us to be holy. Uh, We're not supposed to blend in with the the rest of the culture as if there's no difference at all in what it means to be a Christian. we, We concede that, of course. But if we're not careful, what we can do is we can build our identity on something other than God's grace. It's very easy, and this is not just a Christian problem, this is a human problem. We build our identity on things like our race, our moral behavior, our politics, our social status, our wealth, or whatever it may be. We build our sense of who we are on those things, and when we do that, whatever that thing is, everybody who disagrees, everybody who doesn't live up to that standard, I have to keep at arm's length. And y'all, this is becoming increasingly obvious within our culture, where we just shout at each other over things that you might not think even matter. But we have created these boundaries that cannot be crossed, and therefore we just lob grenades at each other back and forth. It's especially true on the internet and in the media. I mean, you see it. I don't have to convince you of this. But we can take on this mentality that says, I build my life on something and everybody else is not allowed in. And we don't build our lives on the gospel, and therefore we don't bother loving and pursuing people who are different than us. I said this a second ago, but we we potentially end up becoming a church that incubates itself. It's us and no more. It's people like us and no different. Rather than radiating outward what Jesus Christ has done for us so that others might see and know him in the same way. You see how easy that becomes? I love this little story. My, My wife, Jennifer, when she was a teenager in Meridian, Mississippi, her predominantly white church merged and joined congregations with a predominantly black church. They were of the same denomination, and they, they became one church family in 1998, give or take, I think is when that happened. And um, you can imagine the difficulty in Meridian, Mississippi, or anywhere for that matter, the difficulty of the different personalities, different culture, different history, different approaches to, to church and ministry or whatever, right, that they, would, that they would have encountered in the midst of that merger, but they pushed through it. And today they still stand as an integrated church because the minor things were not going to become for them the major thing. 
All that stuff I just mentioned, that's minor stuff. Is it real? Sure. But it's petty compared to the one central thing, the major thing, which is this. We are the family of God. We are all saved by His grace, and therefore there is none of us any different in God's eyes, and we're going to make this thing work. This is who we are. And that's what can happen when we build our, our Christian life, our identity on the gospel. All of a sudden, all that other stuff fades and goes by the wayside. If I build my, my identity on my race, on my whiteness, or on my middle-classness, or on my conservativeness, or liberality, or what, like whatever it is that we say, man, this is who I am, then everybody who's not that has to go. It's just the truth. It's human nature. But if we build our lives on the gospel, if my identity, if, if truly at the center of my being, I am a, a trophy of God's grace, then that means for me and for you, we were all outsiders. We were all outsiders. We were all lost in the wilderness, far away from God. We were pursued and we were brought near. We were brought in. Jesus died that he might bring us to God. And that means there's nobody less than me in the kingdom of God. There's nobody that I'm better than. There's nobody we can look our noses down upon in the kingdom of God because we're all the same. That's what happens when we build our lives on his gospel. Uh, you remember I said this at the front of the message, that to be a Christian, and in fact, it really and truly, if you get down to it, only on the Christian worldview can a person be truly, fully known and truly, fully loved at the same time. No strings attached. Only in Christianity can that really be true, because there's only one true God who sees and knows everything about us, and yet in spite of what he sees, he loves and pursues us all the more. You know, when Jesus looked down upon his creation, the world he created, and he saw nothing but darkness and despair and rebellion, he could have punted and started all over. But you know what he did instead? He was born into a manger, and he was made one of us. He came into our darkness that he might deliver us and bring us into his light. He saved us. He pursued us instead of leaving us in our lost estate. And because he did that, we are now God's children. And now nothing else matters, whether it be race or politics or anything else. Those are minor issues. Fun conversations over dinner, perhaps, at best, right? But they have no bearing in the kingdom of God because he has called us his children together. Let's be clear that the world is not going to comprehend that kind of grace. Uh, the world will not in, uh, intuit that grace. It's not intuitive. It's not. The world has to be shown. The world has to be delivered God's truth and his grace in, in, in human form, right? That's what Jesus came to do, and that's now what the church is. I say we're trophies of God's grace. We are the picture of the gospel, not just the words of the gospel, we will show the world what this can look like. And I want to just say this as, as strongly as I can. I've got a long way to go on this. More than a lot of us in this room, I've got a long way to go on this. But I never, ever, ever want Harvest Church to be an incubator for good people. People who, who have, have somehow arrived, and, and don't we pity everybody else, I want to be a radiator. I want us to be the kind of people that we are so awestruck by what Jesus Christ has done for us that we just can't even help ourselves. It has to spill over. It has to go outward. It's a love for people, irrespective of what we think of them based on any other measure. Those measures are false. They are lost sheep 
just like we were. And therefore, we're going to go and pursue and love them because Jesus has done the same for us. Jesus loved you and pursued you to the furthest reaches, didn't he? To the furthest reaches of your sin, the very worst things about you that nobody else knows. He knows. And yet he came and he laid you on his shoulders anyway. And by his grace, maybe we could become people more and more who reflect what that looks like to a world that has no concept of it. A world that cannot be known and loved in their own way of thinking, but in Christ, yes, they can. And may we lead the way in that. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you forgive me as I stand here that I'm not the model for this? I'm not what I, I wish to be. I'm not what I need to be. And I, I can say fairly confidently that, that none of us are. Um, but Lord, would you not just forgive us, Lord, but, but bring transformation to our hearts. The deeper we go into the truth of your grace and your gospel, the more, the more we just, the more diminished our categories become. the less legalistic and moralistic we're going to become because it's all grace. And Father, I pray that you would, you would give me a heart and us hearts that look at the world not with disdain or disgust, but with deep compassion. When Jesus looked out over the city and over the people, the word says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's what he came to be, the good shepherd. Father, thank you that that's become true of us by faith. But Lord, make it true of us, not just in, in word, but in deed. Make us the kind of people that see the world as, uh, as always opportune. People need to be loved, and people need to be shown the grace of Jesus. We need so much of that, and we need it right now. Father, would you encourage us? to take baby steps in this. Lord, this is not a problem that we can solve on one day or in one sermon. But Lord, if, we, if you would just help us, some of us in this room just need to meet a stranger this week on purpose. Somebody whose name that we can learn that we might begin to pray for them throughout the week and pray the Lord that you would give us another opportunity to cross paths with them, that we might encourage them and love them and give, uh, give them a picture of the hope that's within us. And some of us, Lord, we, we just don't meet strangers. We don't do that anymore. And Lord, you can, you can turn uh, the, the, the tide on that for us this week. We can take a little step. For some of us, that's not a little step. That's a big step. And I pray your encouragement in things like that. Father, we're, we're not the answer people who have all the answers. We're not the good people who we're going to show the rest of the world how it's done. We are graced people. We are people, Lord, who have, irrespective of our past, irrespective of our present struggles, we are people, Lord, um, filled with your precious mercy, and we have something to offer. So, Lord, would you teach us to love our neighbors? Would you teach us to love our enemies? And those we perceive to be our enemies because they think and act differently than we do, Father, they need grace so deeply. And I pray that they would find it when they see us, that they would witness it, Lord, on display, imperfect as we are, that we would be those kind of people.
quick to bless, quick to encourage, quick to love, and quick to point people to a grace that they cannot comprehend. We couldn't either. And that's why you had to put us on your shoulders and carry us in, Father. Would you do the same right now in this community? And would you let us be the radiator for that purpose? Make us the kind of people who, uh, who refuse to be content with um, just us and no more. People like us and no different. Wreck that in us, Father, and bring us into the grace of the gospel. For the sake of our world, in Jesus' name, amen.